This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. My name is Mike Petriello. I'm a writer and analyst at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Tuesday, November 23rd. We've had a lot of news this week. We're going to talk about Wander Franco's reported long-term contract. We're going to talk about the White Sox apparently just moments before our show signing Kendall Graveman, which I didn't see coming. We're going to talk about the Hall of Fame ballot being released. And we're going to talk about the all MLB team. We are also going to bring on a guest, Jim Allen, jballallen.com, who is a Japanese baseball expert. He's going to tell us a little bit about Seiya Suzuki, who just got posted by the Carp and Yoshinobu Yamamoto. And the most fascinating fact about the ongoing Japan series that I can't quite get over. But first, Matt, Wander Franco, 11 years, $182 million, plus a team option for a 12th year and a whole bunch of escalators and all sorts of stuff that could potentially be $223 million. He doesn't turn 21 until March, and I don't think I ever thought these words would come out of my mouth. Giving potentially $223 million to a 20-year-old seems like almost a steal from the team's point of view because he was the number one prospect in the land. He came up midway through the season and basically lived up to every expectation. I think I saw someone tweet that for 2022, if you look at the steamer projection system, he's already considered to be like the 12th best position player in baseball. He doesn't turn 21 until March. And I think also people were surprised that the Rays are the team doing this because they're not usually, you know, giving out dollar signs by this. Were you surprised to see this happen? And um, uh, do the specific shock you at all? Um, I was not necessarily surprised because the Rays have actually done stuff like this before, just not to this level but i mean they the rays you know they signed evan longoria to a long-term deal like what i think it was like a week into his major league career um matt moore similarly when he was a a rookie got a long-term deal now it wasn't you know wasn't neither of those deals went over 100 million let alone potentially over 200 million but then again the economics of the games the economics of the game have changed over the last few years i wasn't surprised that it happened i think it's cool that it happened i, I you know for fa- raise fans the excitement of knowing hey this guy's going to be here for a while we don't have to like already start looking at the clock of like oh when's he going to be a free agent are we gonna are they going to trade him are we going to lose him like this is exciting this is cool and i think it's i think it's it's great for fans of the team and it's great for the team he's going to be around he's a star that's my take yeah absolutely the, the timing of it doesn't surprise me in the sense of like his age because he has proven already that he's living up to the hype i think the timing of you know potentially before an uncertain winter and what that looks like is maybe a little bit surprising but i think people wonder like okay it feels like we've been so i don't know acclimated to these young guys coming up and being called all-time greats or ted williams right away you know like juan soto and tatis and acuna and maybe we are a little bit too amped up to overhype these guys. On the other hand, I do think we have the greatest collection of young talent in baseball history. So I looked this up before. Wander Franco, uh, go back 100 years, go back to 1920, the start of the live ball era. You look at anybody who's 20 years old or younger and had at least 300 plate appearances in a season, 21 players had at least a 129 OPS plus, which he just did, or better. And I'm not going to read you all 21 names, but trust me when I say these are like 
the inner circle greats of inner circle greats, right? Like we're talking Mantle and Williams and Frank Robinson and Ken Griffey and Bryce Harper, two seasons from Juan Soto. He is Ted Williams. I don't want to hear any different. Here's how great this list is that Wander Franco is on. The, I don't want to say worst because still very good, but maybe like the least impressive player on this list is Vada Pinson, who made four all-star teams. You know, unless you get hurt, you cannot come up this young and be this good and not have a great career. It's like scientifically impossible. And so I'm not so much, I don't want to say it's not a risk. Everything's a risk. Like, I don't think anybody should have gambled on me when I was 20 years old for the next 12 years. Uh, but in baseball terms, you this is about as safe of a bet as you can make, I think. I think I think that's right. As you said, like we, we, we now have this recent track record of a number of these players coming up at this age and sort of proving it. And they've, you know, a lot of the guys you're seeing on this list, this is not just like guys from, you know, the early 1900s. It's Acuna, it's Soto, it's Tatis, it's Carlos Correa. Like this is a thing now. Like the players are getting to the majors and they're more ready than they've ever been. So I think you can feel pretty good about what we're getting with Franco. I think if he hadn't gotten hurt, I think he won Rookie of the Year, right? Like, you know, I think that's how that's how good he was in even in an even in an abbreviated season. I agree with you. There was another small bit of news that happened right before we came on. Uh, according to John Heyman, the White Sox are giving three years and $24 million to Kendall Graveman. And Kendall Graveman's had kind of an interesting career uh, from 2014 to 2020. You know, 440 ERA in 94 games, mostly starts, uh, mostly for Oakland. And, you know, lots of injuries in that time. He went to Seattle uh, last year and you know, was not actually very good last year for Seattle. 579 ERA last year, meaning 2020. This year for Seattle, it was fantastic. He pitched in 30 games. And he allowed seven runs, only three of which were earned. Don't actually buy into a 0.82 ERA, but it tells you a little bit about how good he was. He got traded for Houston to Houston in a deal that all of the Mariners players hated. And they got back Abraham Toro. And I have to say, like as a bit of a side note, Abraham Toro later on hitting a grand slam off of Kendall Graveman <laughs> was maybe one of the most entertaining moments of the season for me. And so I have two questions here. One is... Uh, is like his short burst of, I don't want to say greatness, very goodness, worth a three-year deal. That's number one. But number two, what are the White Sox doing? They already have Liam Hendricks, who in my opinion is the best reliever in baseball. They've got a couple of other guys who are very good. Like Aaron Bummer is probably the best reliever you don't know. Garrett Crochet, I like a lot. Ryan Burra, I like a lot. And Michael Kopech, if he's not in the rotation, he's down there as well. They've got some other guys. They also have Craig Kimbrell, who you may remember they traded for in the middle of last year and then was generally terrible for them. They picked up his one-year, $16 million option. I don't think they're going to build the super bullpen that this implies, like to have Hendricks, Kimbrell, Bummer, Graveman is pretty cool. But it seems to me like they're preparing to trade Craig Kimbrell. Where is he going to go? I think even when they picked up the option for Kimbrell, I think Rick Hahn, their president of baseball operations, said something along the lines of like, oh, yeah, we, there's a good chance we could trade him. They, they, they've been pretty open about the fact that they could trade him. I mean, he it was such a weird split for him, right? With the Cubs, he was unhittable. He was a vintage Kimbrel with the Cubs. 049 ERA, a 1.99 uh, xFIP. Uh, what do we have here? A uh, you know 1.10 FIP. Like he was incredible. And then he goes to the White Sox, and he was virtually unpitchable. <laughs> Can I give you just the quick like? Here's the last five years of Kimbrel's career. 2017 with the Red Sox. 
arguably the greatest relief season in baseball history. Just absolutely incredible. 2018 still pretty good, but had trouble throwing strikes. And you might remember they didn't really trust him in the playoffs that year when they won the World Series. 2019, he signed with the Cubs midway through the season after he couldn't find a free agent deal. And he was awful. And in 2020, he was awful. And then for the first half of 2021, he was fantastic. And then he was not so great. And nobody doubts he still has the talent. I just don't know what to make of him. And I feel like there's a deal out there for some team that's desperate for a reliever. Like I saw, you would know better than than I would on this. I saw a bunch of Mets fans were like, trade Jeff McNeil for him. That seems like a terrible idea. (laughs) Let me put this one to you. What if the Cardinals traded Paul DeYoung for Kimbrell? And I say that uh, because the one need that the White Sox really do have is a second baseman. They do not have a second baseman right now. The Mets aren't going to trade McNeil. It'd be funny if they traded Cano. It's not going to happen for mostly entertainment purposes. They should trade for Nick Madrigal. That would be entertaining. (laughs) I don't think that'll happen. Um, How are the Phillies going to mess this up? It feels like a thing the Phillies will do. It's a great question, but it does. It definitely feels like now I'm going to have to go through. It's like, you know, and I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going to do it live on this podcast. (laughs) Trust me. But like, of like the, like who are some highly paid kind of disappointing players, ideally with one year left on their, their deal, because you know, Kimber only has one year left on his deal, so I think it's probably gonna be something that matches up of where there might be might be a might be a fit here. But it's 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 a strange move for the White Sox. I've always been a Graveman fan for I like I think because when he was with the A's as like a starter, he kinda had this like sinker slider profile that I like. And so I was like always rooting for him and it didn't really pan out. So it was kind of cool to see him emerge as a reliever. Um I was surprised to see him get a three year deal, I have to say. Um but you know, good for him. Here, you want a disappointing middle infielder on a one-year deal? Didi Gregorius. <laughs> hey, Philly, you, you just you just called it right there. <laughs> um, I really did. Uh, another piece of uh, news from this week is that giant sigh. <sighs> the Hall of Fame ballot got released. This should be like a fun celebratory thing. And then you realize it's the final year for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and Kurt Schilling. And it's the first year for David Ortiz and... Alex Rodriguez and there's a bunch of like mid-level guys who have cases, you know, Billy Wagner and and Todd Helton and Jeff Kent. And I don't know if you just want to like tune out the Hall of Fame discussion for the next month, I would understand because there's a lot of, let's say, baggage that comes with these guys. Here's what what is interesting to me the most, because I just realized this was an important year. So I will get a vote after the 2026 season. Matt, you are two years behind me or three. I can't remember exactly which. But what that means for me is that the players who are on the first ballot I get, the guys who have been retired for five years, will have been the guys who finished their careers in 2021. And so now it's not like hypothetical, like, oh, cool, I wonder who I'll get to vote for. Now I can look at it and say, I know. And I tell you, the number one name on that list is Buster Posey, pretty obviously. Potentially Albert Pujols. We don't know if he's going to play next year. He wants to. Maybe Zach Greinke. I think he'll probably get another shot. But it's pretty fun for me to like start thinking about Buster Posey and be like, oh, I might I might actually have a say in that guy. Um, I don't know if there's anybody else who's not going to get a job next year, but at least I know that guy. And I like thinking about Buster Posey for the Hall of Fame a whole lot more than the guys actually on the ballot this year. <laughs> the one thing the one thing I'll say about the ballot this year is that it is the final year on the BBWA ballot for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and Kurt Schilling and also Sammy Sosa, although Sammy Sosa is not even close. But I do think that like once those guys are off the ballot, whatever you think of their candidacy or not, we can finally st- – I mean like there was a time when Hall of Fame debates were fun when we were just discussing players as players 
And I feel like, yes, there will still be guys on the ballot who were connected to PEDs, but the difference will be that like these guys actually faced discipline and were suspended for testing positive and such. So at least it's like there's that, that's actually a mark on their record. The issue, so much of the debate with like Bonds and Clemens in particular was like, well, what did you know? Who knew they they did and when did they know it? And oh, it wasn't elite. It wasn't tacitly accepted at the game at the time and all that stuff. And that's just like we go in circles every year, every year. At least now we're like kind of all working with the same info and we have now like clear guidelines of like what is and isn't accepted. So I do think that after this year, at least, you know, there will be a little bit more normalcy to Hall of Fame debates. And I like that is something that like, you know, I, I look forward to. I'm excited to get a vote in five years, almost as excited as I am to not have my first vote be this year, which I know, like, I, I think our mutual acquaintance, Ben Lindbergh, is is one of those people who has his vote for the very first time this year. And I know Ben will be very thoughtful and diligent in it, and I do not envy him that task. We're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and talk to Jim Allen about Seiya Suzuki and Japanese baseball. And we're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. One piece of news I didn't want to get let swept up in everything else is that yesterday, November 22nd, the Hiroshima Toyo Carp posted outfielder Seiya Suzuki. He's a 27-year-old outfielder who just hit 38 homers. He's a five-time All-Star. He's a three-time Gold Glove winner, starting right fielder on Japan's gold medal winning Olympic team. And unlike when Shohei Otani got posted, Otani uh, it was less experienced and younger, so he fell under, fell under the restrictions of the international bonus pool, which meant his choice was less about money, more about location. Suzuki, however, he's a regular free agent. He's likely to get a large multi-year deal to be someone's starting corner outfielder. Matt and I have read the scouting reports, but we're not experts in Japanese baseball, so we thought we'd better find someone who is. And so we're extremely lucky to have live from Tokyo, Japan with us right now, international baseball writer Jim Allen, who writes at jballallen.com. He is the first foreign writer to ever be allowed the privilege of voting in the annual Japanese awards and for the Japanese Baseball Hall of Fame. Jim, thank you for joining us. I know it's like six o'clock in the morning over there. Um, I have a couple of questions for you. I really want to start. There's something that you wrote about Suzuki, um, and this really stood out to me. I read your scouting report on him, and the phrase that stood out was, Suzuki is an outlier in Japanese baseball. And that was really interesting to me. And I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about why that is. Okay, that's, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, this is a guy who basically, the first time I talked to him, we talked, to, I asked him about his size because he was a, a slim high school kid turned pro as a high school pitcher, infielder. And he was, he's put on about uh, three or four kilograms. Uh, so we're talking about seven, eight pounds, 10 pounds of muscle every year uh, for the first three or four years of his career. And I just noticed this guy getting bigger and bigger. And I said, what's up with that? Because uh, Japanese baseball doesn't really do weight training. The strength training is a little alien to a lot of the old guys. It's seen as a faddish thing. It's seen as a sort of a demon that should be avoided. And Suzuki really doesn't care. So that's part of it. That's that's was the first indicator. And the other part of that is that Japanese baseball is about players uh, being told what to do. The teams tell players, you know, how to train, how to do everything, how, you know, pretty much everything to brush your teeth. And the players get programmed to do this. 
and they get programmed into NPB's rhythm, which is six games a week and spring training, which is uh, six straight days and then a day off. And they, their whole, that's their whole thing. Suzuki has got his own, is his own deal. He writes his own program. You know, it seems like to me that carries over into the way he plays, uh, referencing something else you wrote in that piece. You said he goes to the opposite field almost as infrequently as anyone in Japan, mm -hmm. and a great majority of those balls are in the air. And that sounds very much to me like a modern American style of playing is like hit the ball in the air to your pull side for power. Uh, and as you noted, the, the shift isn't really as much of a thing in Japan. Uh, th that really makes him stand out in that sense. Do you think that'll help him adjust to the American style of play a little easier? I don't know if it'll help him adjust. I, I don't know if his hitting style will help him adjust, but he's certainly GM friendly because he's a he's an American style hitter. And uh, scouts and GMs love guys that they can understand. Tadahito Iguchi was probably the most successful right-handed hitter uh, that came from Japan, but he was an infielder, injury issues. A lot of the guys are left-handed hitters and younger guys. And Suzuki's 27, so he's on that he's in that area where it's the adjustment is going to be a real thing. And he's a power hitter, so I guess people will be looking at at Hideki Matsui, who is a little older, but uh, for Japanese guys to see that velocity for the first time at the age of 27 or 28, it's hard. Good. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about. It's mm -hmm. uh, one of the big differences between the two leagues is that in America, the velocity has been jumping um, for many years. And it's always been larger in terms of velocity than in Japan. Has, has the NBB seen any similar increase in velocity over the years or has it stayed relatively constant? It's it's gaining a little bit every year but there there are there are reasons why it doesn't get a lot uh, a lot faster uh, prior, i think the biggest reason is the cap on international players here we have uh, four you each team can have four active import players so you know there's a young arm in the dominican most japanese teams are saying well he's going to go to mlb what are we're not even going to bother that's beginning to change, but that's one cap. Another cap is just the way youth baseball is run in Japan. That is changing too. Also, uh, it's changing because now Japanese teams are taking their kids over the winter and going to driveline. Things are changing. Uh, it's slow, but it is changing. Couple more questions about Suzuki, and then we want to maybe ask you a couple mm -hmm. questions about some other players. Um, okay. Out of curiosity, is he like a player who was? Did he have a lot of pedigree? Was he a high draft pick? Is he someone who was a big prospect coming through, or was he someone who was maybe more of a late bloomer who took people by surprise? Tell us a little bit of his background on that front. He was a top pick. I mean, he was a second round draft choice. Uh, I'd have to look, but he was probably in that area of the. 15th, 16th player taken in his draft year. He was a national team, uh, national team player on the on the Japan under 18 team. He was a pitcher and a DH. Uh, had an army through 91 miles an hour. He was considered uh, an infield prospect, but he, he had too many errors as an infielder, so they moved him to the outfield where he blossomed. 
So uh, it's hard to say. He was not the the marquee pick of his draft. That was Shohei Otani. But uh, no, he's uh, he was he was a star pretty much from his third year. Yeah, just looking at the scouting report. So as you mm-hmm. mentioned, it seems like he's got a really strong arm. Uh, yep. You know, drafted as a pitcher, and the uh, the videos I've seen of him throwing guys out are really really impressive. Right. And I can't stop looking at this. His set of numbers from his 2019 season, where he mm. had 103 walks and 81 strikeouts, right. which seems like it would play in any league. And I, I'm curious. I don't want to just uh, compare the, the Japanese players to other Japanese players. Are there players in the majors that you have read as being like similar uh, type comparisons for what kind of player he might be? Oh, you're well. You're making the international baseball writer seem a little grandiose right now because <laughs> I have to I have to spend pretty much uh, twenty five hours a day thinking about Japan. Uh, <laughs> That's fair. We won't put you on the on the spot uh, about. I that. can't really say, but he's a, he's a guy who has what I guess what's really amazed me the most is how much he's improved compared to other players. He's he's just sort of like taken these parts of his game and elevated them to the next level. He's three times he's led the central league in assists, which is hard because everybody knows he has the best arm of any starter, any outfield starter in Japan. People don't run on him, but he still leads the league in assists. So, Oh, that's great. I'm excited to see him next year. And for those I, who don't know how the, the posting system works, it's 30 days from yesterday. But as far as I understand, that clock will stop if there's a work stoppage. So maybe like eight days now and 22 days later on in the winter. Jim, somebody else I wanted to ask you about, because I feel like not enough people uh, know about this this pitcher in America. And, um, you know, he just won the Sawamura Award for the best pitcher in Japan is uh, Yoshinobu Yamamoto, who pitches for Oryx, 139 ERA in 193 and two-thirds innings uh, at age 22, which sounds really impressive. Uh, he reportedly has a fastball that touches 97, and from what I can tell, his best out pitch is a split-fingered fastball. He, you know, obviously having won that award at that young age, it, it sounds impressive, but without a uh, comprehensive background of Japanese baseball, it's hard for me to put that into context. Is he, uh, you know, the best guy right now, or is this someone who stands out, you know, over a number of years? I think he is... He's been the best pitcher, I would think, over the last three years, which is really something because he is so young. And there's another guy, Kodai Sengo, with the Hawks, will be a free agent next year, has been the the best Japanese pitcher. But Yo- Yamamoto is the guy you just mentioned. Now, you, you mentioned the splitter. Uh, this year, he added a, his curve got really good. And he's a quality pitcher. He's getting better and better. He's learning English, one of his teammates told me. So I expect to see him in the majors in a couple of years, but he's 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 amazing. Who are some other uh, players we should be looking out for in, in, in the United States that, that maybe could become potential, you know, impact players in the majors or who have just saved a desire to come play in MLB at some point? Well, I think the guy uh, you're going to see, uh, as I said, at the end of next year is Kodai Senga. Now, he'll be 30, 31, and he's been he's the hardest-throwing starting pitcher in Japan. He touches 100, and he's a, not a bigger guy, 
but a lot of the MLB scouts like him as a reliever because of, he's got a, he's got a, a good fastball. His problem is command. Uh, he's got a great. Uh, he's got a. He had a new splitter which uh, rotates less and drops more this year. So that was deadly. Uh, his problem is that he plays for a team that does not believe the posting system should actually exists, and so he has to wait. Uh, nine years of service time to be an international free agent. So he'll be coming uh, at the end of next year. The uh, The next guy is a, a Tomoyuki Sugano. He tried, he uh, was posted last year and he, he's a quality pitcher. He's had uh, some fitness issues, but his, his deal is he's a 95 miles an hour guy uh, with amazing command and when he's fit, he's just going to give everybody, uh, drive everybody nuts. He pitched against the United States in the in the semifinal of the 2017 WBC that Japan lost 2-1 to the United States, and he was just amazing. And there was one more guy, and his my brain is stuck. <laughs> That's okay. I'm. I'm. These two are, are fascinating names. Which team, by the way, was it? You mentioned that his team doesn't believe in the posting system. Oh, that's Kodai Senga, right? The oh, SoftBank Hawks. SoftBank. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, the the I the guy I'm thinking about is 21 year old Yakult uh, Sw- uh, Swallows third baseman Munetaka Murakami, who's hit 100 home runs before his 21st birthday. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm glad you mentioned Yakult because before we let you go, I have to ask you about the Japan series, mm-hmm. uh, which is happening right now. And I yeah. know people are like, "What do you mean? It's almost the end of November." Uh, it's because they they took a break in the middle of the season for the Olympics. Yeah, here's the thing that is so fascinating to me: uh, the Japan series right now is the Yakult Swallows against the Oryx Buffaloes, and Yakult has a two to one lead in the best of seven. However, both teams finished in last place in their respective leagues in each of the last two years. Oryx was last in the Pacific League in 2019 and 20. Yelkult was last in the Central League in 19 and 20. And I'm trying to think, is this like if the Pirates and the Orioles made it to the World Series next year? Like It it feels so monumental to me not to have like one worst to first team because that happens, but to have two at the exact same time. What, what was behind this? Was it like an unexpected downturn or did they just like have a ton of breakout seasons? How do you get two teams going worst to first at the same time? Well, Oryx has uh, traditionally been mismanaged uh, in, in the sense that they've had, they had a scouting, uh, they've had always had really good scouts, but the, the top of the organization was for many years feuding with itself. Players didn't really, Players knew the front office was more interested in their position in the front office than they were in winning games. So they didn't, re- you know, that, that's an issue. If the, if the front office doesn't try hard, the players aren't going to give their all. They've got a new manager who's terrific. Both of these teams have new managers. The Swallows are more of a uh, a quality team that has depth issues because they can't go out and buy big name free agents very often. They can't go out and buy the biggest ticket import players. So they, uh, when injuries happen, when players have off years, they, they suffer. Jim, thanks for that. You, uh, you do the Japan baseball weekly podcast. Who do you do that with and where can people find it? Oh, you can find that on 
uh, Apple Podcasts and uh, my podcast partner and actually the the star of the show is John E. Gibson, who's a uh, writer, also a longtime baseball writer, and he writes for the Daily Yomiuri, uh, excuse me, the Japan News. I, I, when I worked there, it was the Daily Yomiuri. He writes for the Japan News and uh, he's just, he's a great uh, guy to work with. Great. Be sure to check out the Japan Baseball Weekly Podcast. That's Jim Allen at jballallen.com. We'll be right back on the Ballpark Dimensions Podcast. We're back on the MOB.com Ballpark Dimensions Podcast. Our big thanks to Jim Allen for uh, dialing in to us from Japan. Uh, earlier tonight, November 23rd, on Tuesday, the All-MLB team was announced as the third annual team. And uh, it opens it up to uh, you know fans, but also you know a panel of, I don't want to say experts because I was included on it. But anyway, they let people vote on it. And it's really interesting to see. I, I liked this idea a lot when it came to being three years ago because we always look back on All-Star teams. And All-Star teams are great except they act like the second half of the season never even happened. <laughs> and that's, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm like, I should have looked this up. I'm like 99.8% sure that uh national league MVP Bryce Harper did not make the all-star team this year, which is a problem. And so this makes a lot more sense. Um, you want to do it at the end of the year and you want to look at the full year. So there was a first team choice, a second team choice. And I'm like scanning them now. And I am, uh, I am, Somewhat surprised at how little of my, of my, how few of my choices uh, interact with the winners. I'll say it's true in the outfield. The outfield seems like a slam dunk. Soto, Harper, and Judge. I'm not really sure how you could have gone any other choices, but uh, there are selections at each of the positions at DH, five starting pitchers, and two relievers. If you kind of cut out the bench and middle relievers, you're trying to put together a, a bit of a roster here. And it was really fun for me to think through it. Matt, when you look at the first team choices, who stands out to you as maybe being a little surprising? I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily surprising that he ended up as this, the sort of the first team catcher, um, Salvador Perez. But like he probably wasn't the best catcher in baseball this year. But I think he obviously had the big, you know, the big shiny numbers, uh, you know, hitting 48 home runs, the most ever for a catcher in a season, driving in 121 runs. So he had, he definitely had the baseball card stats. This is not to, to knock his season, so to speak, but like, I think in total value, you know, I maybe would have taken Will Smith or JT Ramuto over him. You know, Buster Posey ended up on the second team. So that means that, you know, Will Smith and, and Ramuto didn't make make either team. So that, that was one that kind of stood out to me. I had Posey as my first team catcher. Uh, and I, I went Posey and Smith just because, you know, they both hit. I know they didn't hit 48 home runs, right? But like getting on base matters a lot. Sal Perez had a 316 on base percentage. Again, not to knock him, right? Like a fantastic year. The ones that were interesting to me, and you kind of mentioned this offline, was that for all of the angst about the National League Cy Young vote, about Corbin Burns's advanced stats and fewer innings, and Zach Wheeler's uh, maybe more traditional case with lots of innings, that when you uh, look at the, the starting pitchers, Burns made the first team and Wheeler did not make the first team at all. He was the last one picked on the second team. And that seems kind of counterintuitive to what the conversation was about the Cy Young voting. Yeah, it, it, it sort of feels like maybe that was one where the, you know, when we kind of assume that I'm going to guess that maybe like the the panel vote, the experts probably were more aligned with what the Cy Young voting was. This feels like one where maybe there was some dissonance with the fans. And it's kind of strange because in many ways, Wheeler embodies what we think fans want, which is like the workhorse starting pitcher. So you would think that season would be celebrated. But um, 
it seems like maybe he fell through the crack, cracks a little bit on uh, on that front. I was sort of I was sort of surprised by that that he ended up on the on the on the second team. Did you realize that Otani made both the first team and the second team? <laughs> <laughs> he was the first team DH, and he made the second team as a starting pitcher, uh, which makes sense. He was my first team DH. I don't believe I had him as one of my ten best starting pitchers just because of innings. Which I bring that up to point out that everybody who thought. The nerds supported Corbin Burns because innings don't matter. Innings do matter. That's why I didn't have Shohei Otani on my top 10 pitchers list. That's why Jacob deGrom didn't make my list either. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about the voting because I think you're maybe a little more plugged into the logistics of this than I was. When did the voting take place? It was during. It was in October, right? Um, I'm actually not sure when the voting was actually closed, so don't quote me on that. Uh, it appears I sent mine in on November 11th, so maybe I'm a little late on that. But uh, the first team third baseman was Austin Riley who made me think that people forgot that Jose Ramirez existed. But I have to imagine a lot of that was just because Riley was so front and center during the playoffs and a guy like Ramirez hadn't been thought of in like six weeks. Like Braves fans showed up, credit to Braves fans. I don't know how you can actually make a case though that Riley is better than Jose Ramirez. It's, I mean, Jose Ramirez, I think when all is said and done, is going to have like a fascinating career, right? I think that like he's he's one of these players who actually, like in some ways he feels underrated. But then you look at how he's fared in awards voting over the years, and he's finished third in AL MVP twice. He's finished second once. In this past year, he finished sixth. So actually, like, he's been, you know, fairly well recognized, right? He's got three silver sluggers. He's made three all-star teams. He's entering his age 29 season, and, like, I wouldn't say, oh, he's going to the Hall of Fame. But he has, like, he's potentially kind of on a Hall of Fame track, and it certainly doesn't really feel that way, but like it, it, it wouldn't surprise me if he ends up there. Like, you know, when I look at this year's Hall of Fame ballot, like one of my sort of like one of my guys, and you've probably heard me talk about him in on this podcast before is Bobby Abreu. We're like, I'm not certain he's a Hall of Famer, but like he's worthy of a discussion and he hasn't really gotten one. He's, you know, he's gotten like 8% of the votes his years on the ballot. And this is sort of where I feel like Ramirez is going, where he's like kind of celebrated, but also kind of overlooked. And it's sort of hard to really thread that needle. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think he's also, in addition to being underrated, uh, he's going to be one of the more fascinating guys for the next year because I, I don't think they're going to trade him right away, but I also don't think they're going to extend him. And how many teams can you think of would love to have someone like... <laughs> like Jose Ramirez on their team. I'm sorry. I'm just laughing uh, not to go back to a different segment here. Um, I just kind of forgot until right this second, how mad Tony La Russa got at Kendall Graveman <laughs> for hitting Jose Abreu. <laughs> um, it was the playoffs, wasn't it? Oh, that's just like a whole other angle to that. I, as you can tell, we're like what three weeks after the end of the baseball season. And I'm ready for baseball to be back again. Cause I want to see these things happen. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.